You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Listeners, welcome to the show. Well, we're celebrating 11 years on air with Alana Hartsock, who's the international liaison for the Robert Schelkenbach Foundation. She's also the co-director of the Earth Rights Institute. And Alana, I was looking back, it was way back in 2006, you toured through Australia did some uh, about a dozen uh, presentations. Uh, we had a great old time as we, we tried did. to lift the awareness of uh, this age-old story talking about our right to the earth. Uh, what, what's your latest uh, uh, take on uh, an earth rights democracy? Well, let me mention two things. Then. We recently had our council of Georgia's organizations conference in Baltimore just a couple weeks ago. And I was responsible for one of those days, which was a forum on uh, ethics, morality, and the land question. And uh, we were delighted to have Charles Avila come from the Philippines. He wrote a classic book called Ownership, Early Christian Teachings. And uh, several others, we looked at uh, human rights and land rights. And I put together a PowerPoint uh, titled uh, uh, The Golden Thread of Perennial Wisdom Teachings on Land. And we took it back through the um, Vedic period five, 6,000 years ago from uh, uh, a Greek scholar's book who understood that land value taxation was put in place in that high Indus River Valley civilization. And we tracked through several empires of, of the China area, uh, of those ancient empires. We looked at the Middle East. And what we did was track through thousands of years the rise and fall of civilizations based on that whether they kept to an ethic and policies of share, fairly sharing land and resources, in which case they had a thriving, balanced society, uh, without the poverty and the conflict that occurs once that perennial wisdom is lost. And if you start grabbing the land and resources, then you have the horrific uh, conflicts, wealth inequality, poverty, and so on. So, so Carl, in terms of when will the people as a whole again see this, this wisdom teaching around land, uh, it just happens in cycles, and there may be signs, once again, that the possibility is emerging. For instance, in the United States, the two-party system, both are pretty well corrupted by big money, and people are increasingly disillusioned, and they're looking for a way beyond both the old right and the old left. And also at our conference in Baltimore, we had uh, managed to get a number of local people who are social justice and peace activists there. And they have a definitely have their ears open to what we're saying. They're wanting to learn more. So um, 
Mm, so, yeah, Baltimore uh, listeners, uh, that's where the infamous police shooting of Freddie Gray occurred, uh, led to uh, some pretty strong uh, Black Lives Matter type protests. And, of course, also where that uh, infamous uh, TV show The Wire came from. So there's a lot of entrenched poverty there. Uh, was there anything, you know, what really shocked you about being there and, and what was the, the the positives coming through from these social justice uh, yeah, leaders? Well, I, I live only about 80 miles from Baltimore. Um, I mean, even closer there than Washington. It's, it's, it's rather like the major city. that I, It's about 700,000 population, uh, way down from over a million that used to be, and it's about 70% African American. So, Carl, what what Baltimore shows, what we find out when we dig deep into the land issue, is that it is like an internal colony. Just like our Appalachia is resource rich, but the resources, the coal and the other resources are owned by outside corporations, and so the area remains poor, just like a third world pattern. The city of Baltimore is surrounded by wealthy counties, and those counties are where the landlords live that extract the land rent from Baltimore. Oh. So, yeah. So it's helpful for people who are looking at really big pictures around war and peace and social justice to start seeing these patterns that are under our noses here in the United States. So one place that pattern became clear was uh, explained by a former uh, Maryland state legislator. He was a legislator from, from Baltimore where he'd born and raised and still lived. And he's an African-American wise elder. Uh, his name is Clarence Davis. And uh, Josh Vincent, who uh, directs the Center for the Study of Economics in Philadelphia, has uh, been in association and great respect for Clarence Davis for many years now. And uh, Clarence Davis, when he was a legislator, uh, tried to get through the state legislature enabling a law that would allow land value tax shift in the property tax for Baltimore. And while quite often the the state does pass laws presented by uh, Baltimore legislators, they were quite surprised when this one failed. And that when we looked at why it was this pattern, that the legislators from wealthier surrounding counties were where the the landholders of Baltimore were residing. And so uh, a land rent would capture those those rents that are now going external outside of Baltimore and, and, and recycle them back to Baltimore, which would lower the profits of those landowners. Isn't that interesting? That's the politics we're dealing with with the urban situation. It's true in other cities like Philadelphia as well. Yeah, I mean, having the right to vote doesn't really guarantee our freedom. We really have to establish these economic rights to the commons. That's that's the core loophole that uh, underlines so much of uh, the pressures we have on, on planet Earth at the moment. And again, seeing the rise of the commons movement, and it's not too many dots to connect to show our views that the value of the commons is a commons rent. And so the rent belongs to we the people. 
we we create that land value, that land rent, and it should recycle back to us through correct public finance. So you have in Baltimore uh, a, a really uh, a system, a pattern that dates back to colonialism, where there's actually what they call a ground rent system. In this case, it is the it is people who own the, the the land charging the ground rent to the people. It's the privatization of the ground rent. Whereas Thomas Paine and the physiocrats and the early economists who were dealing with wealth inequality, uh, Paine stated that every land owner owes to the community a ground rent for the land that he holds. So this concept, this rent concept, commons rent, ground rent, that that is the ours, it belongs to us, is an ethic that's not very difficult to understand. Most people can grasp that it makes sense. And then when we show them how practically it's possible, uh, I think more and more are going to come on board. So this gentleman, uh, Chris uh, Clarence Davis, the former state legislator from Baltimore, uh, he actually... This was decades ago. He met with several leading Georgists who came to his office. And as they sat talking to to him, they noticed Henry George's progress and poverty there on his bookshelf. So it was a great welcoming to realize there was a kindred spirit. Now, that was some time ago, and Mr. Davis has had lots of other involvements. But what he uh, made very strong and clear at our conference, at our meetings, was that he's now making a definite primary commitment to work for land value tax for Baltimore. And he is in the position of visibility and the power of um, uh, ability to organize that I think we're really going to be building a very significant movement there. That sounds uh, very positive because uh, the people of Baltimore have been on the end of so many faulty policies and... uh, almost disdain uh, because of this entrenched poverty there. And have policymakers virtually given up on Baltimore? Um, well, some you might say. Uh, some might say that they consider Baltimore a drain. Uh, I mean, there's some racism in that as well. Uh, but it's really a, a structural dilemma uh, that the only way to address it is through is through social justice and just economic policies and correct correct land tenure and tax. So another nexus here that I've recently discovered is that there's uh, some strong Green Party peace and justice people in Baltimore as well. And they worked uh, to, to develop a very excellent uh, green city platform and program for Baltimore for a recent mayoral campaign. And I've just been reading this. It's quite impressive. It's, I mean, it really covers the basis of what is the, the, the sustainable development goals that, that one hears about through the United Nations work and all the consensus agreements around sustainable gov- development goals that are made worldwide. Now we see this coming through with these specific plans for Baltimore. The Achilles heel is that that plan does not understand property tax policy. So it says property tax is a catch-22. 
if they decrease it, there's less income for the community, but if they increase it, it impacts uh, the bottom line for the people. But they don't know. The originators of that plan don't understand the piece that we hold, which is the commons rent, the land value tax piece, which you might also call circular public finance because the people create the land value. You capture it, and it circles back to the people. When that movement, that very visionary movement, catches on to the piece that we have, I think that's going to be breakthrough. And I, I just feel in my bones that's going to happen in, the, in this year. I think, I, I, I mean, I've been around the movement for land value tax for decades now. There's certainly been previous cycles of hope falling into despair <laughs> about our capacity to really break through. But I'm, again, in a hopeful place, which is why I'm going to be devoting quite a bit of my time and attention on Baltimore along with a number of other Georgias. Uh, I, I think I think we're going to be able to um, connect a lot of dots and uh, get this this whole thing really really moving, Carl. So that's my optimism at at this time. Listeners, you're on 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host Carl Fitzgerald, and this week we're with Alana Hartsock. She's the co-director of the Earth Rights Institute. And uh, Alana, uh, one of the big things this week, of course, is that it's 10 years on since the global financial crisis, the great moderation, they call it in America. Well, uh, you just scratch your head and wonder, uh, have we learnt anything uh, when so many cities have uh, land prices, property prices above what they were in 2007-8. Uh, it seems like uh, we're, we're beholden even more so towards uh, those reality TV games uh, of uh, mm. property sharks and flippers and all, all these yeah. uh, different shows. We've got one here called The Block. Well, I think it's a matter of uh, the power structure to control the narrative. Uh <laughs> When you have a few media, few companies own most of the media, you're going to get a slant in articles. It's not going to put put forth any any bright ideas that that's going to have a fair wealth distribution. You know, and uh, I don't know how much worse the suffering's going to get. Uh, with with human suffering, as we're seeing here, with the very high and burdensome housing costs rental costs, uh, the evictions, ever-ongoing evictions, this terrible wealth gap that's reflected in the housing problem in the United States. The suffering either becomes so massive that we have massive violence or it becomes so significant that people are, the, the minds are forced to think at a deeper level and then the breakthrough can happen so that we can have enough mass momentum to make the shift the shift to a new economics. I mean, there is more and more uh, from the periphery, progressive periphery of people concerned about social justice on both the right and the left or a fair economy or a truly free market coming from the right. Uh, there is more and more understanding and a quest for another way beyond old right and old left. So. That's what I have to say about that. But you know what? Today is in the United States. It's another anniversary. It's the 17th year of the anniversary of 9-11. 
So that could take us in a whole other direction. Couldn't <laughs> uh, adjust. Yeah, this is this is the anniversary nine eleven. So the nine eleven truth movement is putting out a lot, a lot of information, and there is just so many documentaries and so much evidence from thousands of scientists and engineers about the big lie of nine eleven. Well, as a control mechanism, uh, it was very effective in in locking down uh, those liberties that uh, the so-called New World Order is, uh, and the neoliberal paradigm, is meant to deliver on. It was a master-minded operation, uh, and we pretty much know who did it and how how it was done and why it was done. And uh, there's a call now for a new the the the, the total sham of the 9/11 Commission at the at the time is now known, and now we have solid evidence that what we were told could not have happened according to the laws of science and physics. Uh, and it's just irrefutable that the, what we were told was a lie. So that information is growing stronger and stronger. More and more people are finding out and listening to it. And we're up against a very, a very horrid, I want to say evil, power, power system on the planet. And it's been represented at the peak by United States imperialism in all our wonderful partner states like your country of Australia and Britain and several others. But that's peaking. One way or the other, uh, world is waking up. BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, stronger and stronger all the time. Uh, the break away from the U.S. petrodollar towards the Chinese uh, money system. These breakaways are happening. It, 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 our super imperialism, as Michael Hudson calls it, of the United States is fast shrinking. But the power elites are shrieking. <laughs> they don't want to give up any power, of course. So hence the, the very extremely dangerous time that we live in. Even here in my state of Pennsylvania and certain counties, when people are confronting corporate power, uh, they're really fighting and struggling against it and realizing that if we can't control and protect our air, water, land resources where, where we live, then we have no democracy. And people of all political stripes are waking up to that reality here in even rural Pennsylvania that's usually conservative and Republican and all that. Uh, people are getting very quick and deep lessons about what we're up against. So we want to bring in a new economics that's fair and free and will allow basic human needs to be well met so that humanity can launch to another stage where the mental and spiritual and creative capacities of humanity can expand because the mental and spiritual levels you can expand without ever taking from anybody else. So that would be true human development. Henry George had that beautiful poetic chapter, the problem of individual life and his vision of, of a new beautiful new order for our earth at the end of his book, Progress and Poverty. And uh, that's what people like us are yearning for. So we're right at the cusp of it, and we're right in the midst of the struggle for that. 
So each and every day and each and every minute, what each of us does is really important. It counts for something. It counts for quite a bit. One of the uh, havens for uh, progressive policy we discussed last time you were on the show uh, last year uh, was the new urban agenda that the United Nations launched. And I was reading over the notes from that show and looked at uh, uh, section 152 in there, and they were talking about the need to promote capacity development programs in land reform. Now, for me, that is the big problem. We've basically won the intellectual argument, the... uh, the economists are largely on board here in Australia, but it's my failure as a campaigner to break this down into a, a conversational topic and create the sort of viral uh, tools that our uh, meager bunch of supporters uh, can use that uh, is is lacking. And it's it's that capacity development that is so urgently needed in terms of campaigning. So... Uh, have you uh, had much involvement at the UN level of recent and uh, has there been any traction uh, amongst yeah. that giant uh-huh. organisation? Yeah, yeah. I, I do have a couple of things to report. And before I do, Carl, you mentioned reviewing our conversation from over a year ago. I saw on your website that you've done over more, more than 500 of these radio programs. That's so impressive. Over 500. That's, that's just astounding. It's so magnificent. So I want to say bravo and congratulations. And um, uh, it's really remarkable your contribution has been just keeping your radio program going, let alone everything else you're doing. So you deserve some real wins. <laughs> so let's <laughs> see what wins. We do get them. We do get them. You do get them. Slow, you want, you want more and bigger and better wins. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's so frustrating when you just see this policy fraud coming through. And in Australia, we have, uh, you know, the mainstream is all talking about the need to build more houses. That's what's going to make housing more affordable. And our uh, 127th annual dinner last week, Cameron Murray uh, released a fantastic report, uh, The Unspoken Alternatives to Expensive Housing, and it was focusing on two different land rent models, one a government run and one the community uh, land trust model. But the Canberra Land Rent Initiative was four times more effective than the best dreams of the supply side uh, story. (sighs) Gee, I'd love that to be headline news. I'm still working away on that, but um, mm-hmm. good one. Yeah, it's it, but it's that education process, and you see what the environmental NGOs are doing, framing things in a positive nature. I love this place. Is sort of one of the environmental campaigns they're uh, moving towards, and uh, for me, it's just like. Yeah, how do we get out of uh, reporting on all of these negatives and and focus on the few positives that are go, are are underway? Well, I think once present the concept that we 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 can hardly use public funds to pay for building housing for everybody, but that we can have market driven approaches. Right now, the market being poorly and improperly and unjustly harnessed, if you will. The only housing being built in the United States is high-end. There's literally no affordable housing being built in most places. 
And that may be true in Australia. Maybe that's mm-hmm. what you were trying to get grapple with. That's where the capital gains are. Yep. Yeah. And there's just no gains at all to be made in, in affordable housing, not even ordinary profits to cover labor and capital for uh, affordable housing. So since that's a basic need, it's, it's really, really good to keep focusing on the housing issue, one. And then, two, to just show very clearly the dynamic of who owns what land where and how much is it worth, how much is being held off the market by speculators. You've done a great job of that, looking at the uh, how the water, water has been stopped, and you can tell that that means it's a vacant house. Uh, we can look at all these boarded-up buildings in the cities and really talk about this uh, terrible under underutilization of valuable land. So bringing that to a focus with the sobering truth along with the bright promise of we know what to do about it. It's not that difficult. It has to do with a public finance reform that's completely doable, not not difficult to implement. And so that should be like a, a voila, like a hallelujah, we can do this. And we can do this beyond right and left, beyond the old right, as a people solving people's problems. And when we focus it on the city level, it becomes that much more manageable because our national governments are really, really difficult to deal with right now. They are so corrupted by the big money powers. But on the city level, I think more and more people are beginning to realize that on the local level is where the actions really, really is that we focus right right in our communities, our towns, and our cities. Changing the big picture of the nation state right now is really too too difficult, but not with our cities. And that's where the new urban agenda comes in and that, that uh, coming out of the United Nations Habitat, the city agency, and that very carefully prepared uh, new urban agenda that was then uh, adopted by consensus in Ecuador two years ago, then went on to be adopted by consensus of the entire United Nations General Assembly. So that has recommendations for land-based taxes and our policy in several, several sections. So uh, I recently had a conversation with the Global Land Tool Network that has the land focus of the United Nations Habitat Agency. Uh, So uh, even though we had hoped to build a partnership uh, 10, 12 years ago for various reasons that faded, but they have new people in there, new directors and leaders, and they were very interested when I sent out the invitation to mayors and cities for uh, research for land value tax implementation four-page letter. Uh, So they wanted to talk to me. We talked for over an hour from Nairobi, Kenya, to me in Pennsylvania. The FIG, which is the International uh, Association of Land Surveyors, is also an active partner with the Land Tool Network at UN Habitat. They read the letter, and they are very interested in working with us. And there's avenues that are recycling back again that I hoped would open up a decade ago, but they sometimes things just ripen in their own way. It seems that it's moving to a front place again with these agencies and these organizations who do see the land problem and then the need to address it. And uh, they're looking for expertise. They really are. 
They're they're saying to me there's mayors all over the world very interested in land value tax capture, land-based taxes, however you put it, talking about the same thing. And they say the mayors all over the world are interested. And they're saying, uh, but when you drill down into the fine details of implementation, it gets complicated. Well, I don't think it has to be. I don't think it is that complicated, Carl. But they're looking at other avenues that do not have the expertise as our nexus of experts do to how you actually implement it. Hmm. And we're, we're going to bring that to their table, and I think they're going to be able to work with us and move forward now. Well, Alana Hartsock, that's a great news to finish there because, yeah, I do remember a decade ago, there must have been 30 of us involved in the program and uh, uh, at the Global Land Tools Network and uh, when they didn't uh, grasp the uh, importance of the land story, it was a little frustrating. So great that uh, you persevered and brought that back. Well, I challenged these. The people I worked with previously, as I said, are no longer there. And so they said, well, we're, we're new leadership now. We're ready to move ahead. <laughs> I think the uh, what happened before was I think they got kind of scared and ran away from it. They were afraid. They're funders. They're donors. You know, we're talking about the IMF and the World Bank. Those are big partners with the United Nations. This new uh, leadership may be able to take the bull by the horns and move forward now. I hope so. After a dozen years of land grabbing uh, through Africa and whatnot, uh, yeah, finally, uh, th that's important that we've had that breakthrough. So uh, Alana Hartsock from the Earth Rights Institute, uh, international liaison for the Robert Shelkenbach Foundation. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here on 3CR's Renegade Economist. You're so very welcome, Carl.